edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing the conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Now, imagine that you were an undergraduate and one night you're interested in mystical and psychic things. And one night you're uh, hanging out with some pals and maybe smoke some hashish and playing with a tarot deck or a Ouija board or something like that. And then sort of out of the blue, you find yourself rising out of your body uh, and then proceed to have hours and hours of extraordinary uh, earthly and cosmic uh, voyages uh, with a sense that this out-of-body experience that you're having having um, is realer than real. Uh, absolute clarity, a complete sense that this is actually what's happening and even as it's going on you're having some conversations with people's in the room it goes on and on and on and then you're left eventually back in your body with the big question of uh you know wtf what was that about uh, now you might go on to uh w- want to study this such a phenomenon as uh, did our guest today susan blackmore uh, uh so I'm, I'm sure many of you know about her. She's a great psychologist and uh, uh, a skeptic. And that's what's the most interesting thing to me about her story is uh, uh, despite this extraordinary experience, or rather because of it, um, Susan dove into uh, studying psychology, studying the mind, studying the brain, studying the sense of self as a way to understand this and shifted over the years from a true believer, if a uh, smart and savvy one, to a, uh, uh, to a strong skeptic about these matters. Um, and in her new book, Seeing Myself, New Science of Out-of-Body Experiences, she returns to a to- this topic because it's been something motivating uh, her uh, whole career. Her first book was called Beyond the Body and dealt at, with a much earlier phase of her understanding of the out-of-body experience. And it's a wonderful book. She's a very clear, uh, thoughtful writer. And unlike a lot of uh, hardcore materialist skeptics, um, she doesn't just dismiss this phenomenon as, as a mere hallucination or something to be ignored or possibly you know, written off as just some kind of hallucination. She's fascinated by the richness, by the detail, by the sense that things are real and wants to know real answers or, uh, or how we could think about those things in scientific terms. It's not just about uh, out-of-body experiences, but she goes into near-death experiences, auras, astral travel, sleep paralysis, uh, lucid dreams, all of which feed into and relate to this question of what is happening when people have extraordinary out-of-body experiences and what does it tell us about the nature of reality or, or on a maybe slightly less complicated level, uh, the nature of the self or at least the sense that we are a self. Uh, so I look forward to this conversation very much. Uh, welcome to the show, Sue. Hello. Thank you. What a fantastic introduction. Brilliant. I, well, love, I love a bit about earthly and cosmic realms or something. Yeah, that's what it was like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, I mean, it's great. And I know that you, uh, you've told the story a gazillion times, and it's, yeah. uh, it's something that you've returned to throughout your work for, for great reasons. I mean, it's just a wonderful thing to have had such a profound experience. And I mean, even in the annals of, out-of-body experiences, I've read, you know, my share, and uh, it's, it really stands out. Um, so I know that the whole story would take us, you know, half of the of the podcast at least, but 
Um, but it does seem really important because I'm, I'm, I'm really interested not only in some of the conclusions that you're drawing now about this particular experience and how it relates to these other you know, peculiar, extraordinary states of consciousness and experience that many people have. But I'm also just, I've always been just in love with the evolution of your career, of, of having this experience and coming out a believer and wanting to defend uh, the psychic reality of these things. And then slowly over time, really cha you know, tr utterly transforming your approach to these things. And that's something else that uh, really amazes me. So I just love to hear at least a, a Cliff Notes version uh, of your story and how it sets you going uh, to find out about what was going on with these experiences. Okay. Well, I know there'll be some people out there going, oh, I don't want to hear that story again. But the thing is, I told the story quite a bit in the beginning, soon afterwards. And then, you know, for decades, I just thought, I'll never go back to that. And it's because of the new science, it's because of what's happening now, that the OBE is at last becoming something, you know, serious scientists and philosophers are talking about that I've come back to it. So I forget, you know, please forgive me if you're sick to death of the story. I'll try to keep it short. But you described already the situation late at night with my friends in the Psychic Research Society in Oxford, uh, listening to, I don't know, Grateful Dead or Pink Floyd or something like that. And I was going down a tunnel. And this was in 1970. So I had never heard of tunnel experiences. The term near-death experiences hadn't even been invented then. And so there was nothing that I knew about that could have made that, that happen. I knew something about astral projection from my friends there, but um, not, nothing about, about the other aspects of it. So I was going down this tunnel towards a light, and I must have been doing something a bit weird. I was just sat on the floor, but my friend Kevin said, where are you, Sue? Which is a very weird question if you think I'm just sitting there kind of on the floor next to him. Anyway, um, that prompted me to try to work out, you know, not in a tunnel, where am I really? And it was as though all the blurry, drifting feelings that I was having in this tunnel suddenly went away. Everything was clear and I was looking down on myself and my friends in that room. And as you were already intimated a moment ago, it was so realistic, even though looking back, I can say that the room wasn't really quite right and my body didn't look quite right and so on. Nevertheless, there was this intense feeling of this is more real than I've ever felt before. I'm more me than I've ever felt before. This is it. This is right. You know, that sort of feeling. All of this completely, you know, I was 18, 19, um, you know, Oh, I didn't know what to make of it. But my friend kept me going. Kevin kept saying, uh, can you go anywhere? Can you have you got a silver cord? Can you move? Can you fly? And I was off and I traveled all all sorts of places, as I thought at the time. Uh, I went to the Mediterranean. I tried to go over to New York and see what people were doing there. I stupidly didn't go and say to my friends, will you go in another room and pick a random number or something like that, you know? But I did try to check up the um, the site of the roofs and what the gutters and pipes and things were like um, and what, it, what the grounds of the college looked like. Disappointment next day when I was got over it and went and looked and they were all wrong. But the experience had been so real that even that didn't make me think, at the time, didn't make me think, Oh, you know, it must be it must be a hallucination or something because it was just so real. It turned at some point from traveling around in what seemed to be this world to um, I tried to get back into my body and I failed. I, I got too small and I got frightened. And so I tried to get bigger and I overshot 
And I mean, that's another whole long, extraordinary story. Um, uh, but basically, I just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And that was my way of expanding into uh, oneness. I simply became one with everything. And there wasn't anything but whatever was happening. And a sort of timelessness and spacelessness of extraordinary clarity. Can, can I ask just one question about that part of yeah. your experience where you expand to basically take in uh, the cosmos? And I've had, you know, milder versions of that at the occasional in, in meditation experiences. But since you have also done a tremendous amount of meditation and have definitely had experiences of, of losing the self into the you know, totality of reality and that sense of oneness and non-dualism and, and expansion and peace. How much did that, if you can recall, was it similar at all to this, that, that moment when you sort of became the universe or was it still very different, uh, even though some of the language is similar? It's a very, very interesting question and one which I've only really fairly recently come around to thinking about. In one, one side of my answer would be, there are similarities. Um, I have come in my, my own practices, Zen, Zazen, open meditation. I have come to states in which time and space seem to disappear in a rather similar way. That same impression of there are things happening, there's change, but it's not happening in a normal framework of time and it's not happening to any observer, which of course is rather hard to describe, but some people will will know what I'm, I mean. Um, so that I have had. Now, the sense of expanding, I've had a little bit with cannabis, but not nothing like the, the kind of real seeming that it was at that time. But another aspect of the answer would be some recent practice I've been training in the jhanas, which if which I've done, I've done two 10-day retreats and quite a lot of practice on my own as well. And I'm going on another retreat later this year to, to deepen this practice. The jhanas are a series of eight increasingly absorbed states of mind, which are reached through concentrated concentrated meditation. Not the open sort I normally do, but eyes closed, going inside and, and deep concentration. And these are absolutely fascinating. And the fifth one, which is also called the first formless state, is a kind of expansion, expanding and expanding, expanding into space until you come into limitless space. Um, now, I am not competent enough at the jhanas to get that, although I've been practicing and got little hints of it and so on. So I have it, the question you've asked is, is, is right there in my mind. And I'm going, to, you know, you shouldn't go to a retreat thinking I'm going to manage this. You know, that's not a very helpful attitude, but it's all part of my exploration. I suspect that this that, ha that has been described in the sutras and so on, um, that other people have had. I suspect it's the same thing, but I, I can't be sure. You know, these things well, lead me on into all these questions. Yeah, and it's just so wonderful that you that you've you know found uh, uh, that that your that your interest in Zen and meditation, which again, like your interest in in the paranormal, began at a very different time, at a very different person, really, with different intentions and motivations, and how uh, you know all the hours you've put into experience to to practicing Zen. Uh, has allowed you to kind of also ask these questions and bring these worlds together in a way that very few people 
uh, do. I mean, I know there are some people, some of your colleagues, um, you know, in neuroscience and and in skepticism um, are also practitioners and who have had ex extraordinary experiences with meditation or psychedelics and are are galvanized by them. Uh, but it really seems that, that that's one of the the uh, unique things about your career is that you've 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 really had a, a foot in both worlds for a very long uh, you know, period of time uh, of of a, a commitment to uh, experience and to being open to experience as a as a real problem and also as a real opportunity to understand the self, to understand the nature of suffering, to understand the nature of the world, and at the same time to not allow, if, if we, I might say, at the most extraordinary experiences to so bowl you over that you lose your commitment to explanation. At least that that's that's what your your stance evolved into. Um, but it, again, that brings me around to like, again, one of my most uh, the fascinating parts of your story is you come back from this experience, you know, the, the one that we just the, you, we briefly talked about. Uh, and there you are and you're like fired up and you're like, oh, there's something real here. I want to tell these old fuddy daddies what's actually going on. Yeah. And yeah. then what ha what happens? How long was it? As you became a psychologist and started doing studies and started doing parapsychological experiments and getting into the literature, this was the 70s, it was boom time for this stuff. How did you shift? How did your doubts begin to arise? And wh what were the kind of real moments of transformation? And how, and how difficult were those to do since you had so much invested and you had such great extraordinary experiences to back up your investment? It's very hard to look back so long. I mean, we're talking, what, 45 years, more than 45 years. Um, and at the time, it seemed like it, the transformation took a very long time. But re looking back now from the age of 66, you know, it was only a few years. What happened was this was in my first year of an undergraduate degree in physiology and psychology. At the end of that degree, I had got a... Um, I was offered a PhD place at a, at a very good university to do cutting up pigeon brains to look at memory or something. And I just decided then I can't do that. I've got to understand the paranormal. I felt in those days, there's no way I could investigate out of body experiences. That was just so much beyond the pale. But as you said, that in that period, there was parapsychology going on. And I just had jumped to all these illogical but understandable conclusions that because this experience seemed so real, this proves telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, psychokinesis, ghost, poltergeist, you know, the whole works. So I managed to uh, get a job that would allow me to, you know, uh, pay my way through a PhD, managed to find a university that would take me to do my own research project. I mean, I had a supervisor who didn't know anything about parapsychology, but okay, you know. Um, and basically, I did three years research without very much help or guidance. And I did lots and lots of experiments on telepathy. Um, I, I was also um, teaching a course on parapsychology, which was very popular. So I had more than 100 students and I would use them for experiments. So I was able to get a lot of experiments done with large numbers of subjects. And um, the first two experiments got significant results. I was like, wow, you know, fantastic. Yeah, I'm on my way to proving to what you said, the fuddy-duddies, you called them, to proving them, you know, oh, um, there's more in your, you know, there's more in the universe than you ever can believe. Um, but then somebody pointed out a statistical problem, which is quite obscure one, nevertheless, a real one. And I had to redesign the way I was doing the experiments. And from then on, all the results were just a chance. So we're talking here of four years of experiments. And what I can remember, and again, I'm, you know, I'm hesitant about remembering things from so far back, but I, 
my memory is that every time one of my experiments failed, I would be disappointed for a while. And then I'd bounce back and I'd think, right, well, I won't do that anyway. You know, if there isn't any clairvoyance, then I can try telepathy. If there isn't any telepathy, I'll try something else. And, you know, there always seemed to be another corner to turn, another door to open that that would actually prove the fuddy-duddies wrong. And by the end of my PhD, I'd resorted to doing experiments on tarot cards, which I was a tarot reader. I I, I was training as a witch. I had my crystal ball and, you know, um, so I was trying all kinds of things, but nothing seemed to work. The, the tarot experiments were very interesting because I was able to show that you really need to be face to face. I know some phone tarot readers will say not. Uh, well, you, talking might be enough, but it's it's basically a cold reading that's going on. And the cards really are just a, a little help, you know, then that. The, the, the predictions and stuff are not in the cards. So I found some interesting things. But every time there seemed to be another corner, you know, I'd keep going and keep going. But at some point, and I remember this, it's like a flashbulb memory, really. I can remember lying in the bath in the house that I lived in then, in Guildford, in Surrey, and having this awful thought for the first time, this awful thought, what if none of it is true? And that really was a horrible thought. But even then, I think I'm a kind of resilient, you know, and also I'm deeply dedicated to, to, to evidence. And so, you know, with this horrible thought, I think I got out of the bath. I, I remember lying there and thinking, you know, that could be true. It could all be rubbish. And 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 then what? And and it was like a new, it was like a real turning of a corner, a real like opening up of a kind of what seemed like a terrifying prospect to begin with. But then I thought, okay, well, if that if there isn't, then then what? What are the consequences of this? I, oh, wait, don't... I, want, to st- I want to stop there. I want to yeah, ask yeah. just, I just, just because. Too much, you know? No, 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 no. It's it's just <laughs> that I, I there's parts of your story that I uh, that I think about when you reflect on it now. You know uh, that that point you got to. What if all of this is rubbish? Now, from it's very clear that whether we're talking religious ideas or political ideas or you know the all the, the problems with bias and all that kind of thing that. You know, human beings are incredibly good at, you know, maintaining a a kind of shell of justification around some deep assumption that they want to protect because they have so much riding on it. I mean, we all do that to certain degrees. And part of being a mature person is learning ways to, you know, question that aspect of ourselves as as well as well as other people. You know, I think other people in roughly your position might have still, you know, just soldiered on with another sort of set of justifications or some or maybe some commitment to a more irrationalist idea that like, well, our science can only take us so far. And at a certain point, you just have to embrace experience and go with what you know in your gut or whatever. And you didn't do that. What what was that? Is that is that part of your personality? Is it part of your training? Is it part of the time? Like what what allows someone because i think it's a very important thing what allows someone to really look right at the you know some of the most important assumptions i've been working with may actually be wrong and be willing to go through that terror and but with a sense of resilience and openness to that they're still thinking they're still understanding they're still being a good person whatever the the thing that carries you farther um what 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 do you think it was in you that that enabled that oh I have no idea. I mean, if you're right that it's a kind of sign of maturity, I got kicked into being mature uh, very quickly um, with a very hard kick. 
Um, but I'm very grateful for that now. I don't know what it was about me. I mean, I'd just done a degree at Oxford, which obviously was training me to look at, you know, take the data seriously, uh, compare theories. I think in England, one of the good things we have in our education system and the tradition of um, of the English debate, you know, the, the 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 two sides and you have to have to debate. I'd been we'd had to do that at school. And I think one of the things I I, I think is important about that is we were made to argue for things we didn't believe in. So they set up a school debate and I was in the debating society where, you know, you have, I don't know, Brexit versus not Brexit or something. And um, not in those days, but you know what I mean. And you would be told to argue for the case you didn't believe in. That sort of practice may have helped. Maybe I just am like that. I don't think it would have been my parents. They were not intellectual people. Um, you know, they didn't read a lot and didn't go to university and so on. I don't know what it was, but I was just, I think partly, you know, partly the experience was so dramatic that I just had to understand it. And this wasn't helping me understand it. So maybe that helped me to think, well, if this doesn't help, what does help? I certainly looked into other kind of psychic ideas and I got deeply immersed in parapsychology. I went to lots of parapsychology conferences, published lots of papers and so on. So I, you know, I tried lots of different ideas and they, they didn't work. So a more positive thing that happened then was, well, no, let me say one more thing. You said how difficult it is. One of the difficulties for me then was not only an intellectual one, it was a very personal one to do with the self and who I am, because I was dressed in all my hippie clothes and doing my tarot readings. And I was the psychic one that, you know, that people would come to me and say, oh, will you do a tarot reading? And, you know, that sort of stuff. So I, I had to change. I mean, it, it forced me into changing very much who I was at that time. Um, but it also led to me to keep on questioning. And that led me into all sorts of different things. You talked about the meditation. And although I thought um, at the time that my meditation was really something totally separate from my intellectual endeavors, I'm sure I would not have taken up um, Zen training, you know, as I did, had it not been for that experience. Um, nor would I have done it, you know, kept at the practice. But um, it also, I think, led to me ending up doing so much work on consciousness and you know which I'm still I'm doing the third edition of the consciousness textbook <laughs> right at now I'm doing the proofs at the moment and that, so that whole thread of my life I think came from that as well, well so what, it was what, 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 that the world sort of opened up and gave me yeah. more possibilities well what, one reflection I have on this that I, I it's just more like a, a, a reframing of, of the stories is that it is that what you what you you Rather than keeping fidelity with the concepts that you had developed based on your experience, you kept fidelity to the forcefulness of the experience and let that drive you farther into very different questions. That's that, absolutely right. That's that's a very good. I hadn't really thought of it quite that way, but that's exactly what I mean. Yes. Yeah, and for me, in in my you know, I have a more op open minded. Uh, kind of approach to these things. I mean, I don't want to go into how I frame uh, issues of parapsychology and reductionism and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it, get, it gets complicated and that's not, it's not as interesting as your book. Um, but uh, uh, one thing that's just really clear to me is that that distinction is extremely important and that, and that there, that it's very important to, to really 
even though we can fool ourselves with experience, obviously, obviously concepts and ideas and expectations are bound up deeply with our experience. But there's something about staying, about being a critical thinker, but staying with the experience that seems really key that a lot of people who are, you know, scientists or psychologists, they seem to miss that, at least in their private lives. Um, and then on the other side, you have all these people who have all these extraordinary experiences, but they just get completely lost because they build up all these concepts or expectations. And then those things begin to be what they're talking about. So there's a there's a sort of middle path, if you will, uh, uh, be, you know, between those zones where you keep cultivating these extraordinary experiences, but in a spirit of of criticism that's informed, you know, deeply uh, by science and psychology. I think that's a really amazing place to be. And that leads me to my next question, which is my my sense is, and I could be wrong since you've been in this field for you know decades. No, uh, you couldn't be wrong. <laughs> no, I'm gonna say that my sense is now that all of that there's all of these sort of outlier or weird experiences that are becoming more and more important and pertinent to neuroscience and cognitive psychology, partly because, you know, if we're gonna explain consciousness, we gotta explain everything. We can't just explain waking conscious or rationalism or logical thinking, or we also have to explain out-of-body experiences, psychedelic rapture, uh, non-dual, you know, we, we gotta take on the whole, they, it may, they not, may not be what they seem to be, but we got to deal with them. But my sense is that in the 80s, even in the 90s, people who were working on the hard science reductionist end, uh, this stuff was sort of there, but most people didn't really want to deal with it or they would just write it off as foolishness or just delusion. H has there been a real kind of shift towards taking these kind of outlier experiences more and more seriously from people who are otherwise not particularly interested in them in inside the sciences? Yes and no. Um, it, the, the, the yes sense, which is fantastic and is the reason I wrote this book, is that there are now people taking OBEs seriously and using them to look at the nature of self and connecting them with what we know of neuroscience and so on. The no sense concerns more the, the near-death experiences, um, where if you go back, you mentioned the, the, the 80s and the 90s, there was this massive dichotomy um, between um, the, 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 like, all, all of science and then parapsychology and the only kind of research that went on on out-of-body experiences was trying to prove that somebody can see something at a distance during that experiment experience so they weren't interested in the quality of the experience what it feels like why it might feel the way it does why you know anything else it was just trying to prove that and sadly that is still true of, a, of all the not all almost all of the near-death experience research. So these ghastly, ghastly books, which I'm sure you've come across, you know, the the uh, the other world genre, the, what, what's it called? Um, heavenly tourism, you know? I've been to heaven and, and I've come back. And they, the, the key in all those books is, I saw something I couldn't have known about. I floated down the corridor and saw whatever it was. Or this little boy, you know, had this near-death experience and saw his mummy in another room or whatever no real interest at all in what the experiences are like. And that is terribly frustrating because that's been the case all my lifetime. You know, and so what? I, keep, I wrote about this in the book, of course, that, you know, if you really could show that somebody saw something at a distance like that, well, then what? Then what theory have you got? And the theories that they come up with are 
endless consciousness, extended consciousness, but they don't say what that means. So that's very depressing. But the other side of it, the yes answer, is ever since, so this is kind of key thing that took me back into this and made me write the book, was a discovery in 2002 by a Swiss neurosurgeon called Olaf Blanke, that if you stimulate the temporoparietal junction on the right side in, in somebody, uh, which is hard to do, um, he was doing it in an operation on an epileptic, you can induce and control out-of-body experiences. So the critical thing there, it's quite funny really, because it, there are, there are the, the believers, if you like, who, are, who, who will say, ah, well, that bit of the brain is where God communicates with us, or that bit of the brain is where the astral body gets out of the skull, or that bit of the brain is where, you know, um, the astral doorway opens, or something like that. So how do you make a better theory? Well, the answer is you say, well, what is happening at the TPJ, the temporoparietal junction? What is that doing in the brain? What's its role? And the answer is it's absolutely critical in all the networks that are building up the sense of self, and particularly the body schema, which is our physical sense of where our body is and what it's doing and how it's moving. So right now, I was just then scratching my arm. Um, you know, that is my body schema is being constantly updated um, all the time. Otherwise, you couldn't, you couldn't live. That's what's happening at the TPJ. So it begins to make sense that if you disturb that, that part of the brain in, in a way, then the body schema can split or drift or change or whatever. So this is the way I think that we... Um, defeat, defeats perhaps the wrong word, the, the overcome, get, give a much better explanation of what's going on rather than just looking for these par paranormal phenomena. And then we're off, but then we can ask questions. Well, why does this happen? What different conditions? And looking back on my own experience, we know that sleep deprivation, for example, um, selectively affects the, the TPJ more than other areas of the brain. And I was very sleep deprived at the time. Cannabis has effects on the TPJ. Um, and probably doing the Ouija board that I was doing all evening where you're holding out your arm for ages and it goes a bit sort of numb and peculiar, that would probably interfere with the TPJ as well. Oh, how wonderful when things start to fall into place like that. And you go, yes, which you can never do when somebody sees their mummy down the corridor, which just goes, oh, all of science is wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, what I like about that is the, the, the how the you know, at the, at the core of the explanation then is this, or, or at the, at the models are, is this sense of self, which of course is also, you know, part of the meditation practice or whatever, um, that, that, it, that the sense of self is whatever else it is. And it may be other things as well. Um, partly a con a construct that you can trace and you can show uh, different brain regions involved in it and different, and, and especially using experiments to trick it. Uh, to to play with the um, or with creating like instability in the sense of self, and then sort of seeing what the system uh, kinds of uh, kind of does. And it feels like we we just to at least to judge from from your book from from your recent book that that uh, the story of how the sense of self is constructed and and created uh, is much more robust than it was, uh, you know, even, a, uh, you know, a decade or two ago, um, that that seems to be one of the places that people are doing, are, are really paying attention to. And stuff like OBE just feeds right into that, right? It's, a, it's, it's almost like designed almost to help understand how the sense of, how could you have a sense that you were outside of the body? How could you have a sense that you were flying? Are you in a body? Are you not in a body? What's the silver cord? What's the silver cord anyway? This, you had a silver cord, right? That's like, a, yes. it's like a, 
it's an old theosophical like or astral travel idea. There's this silver cord and you had a silver cord, but you may, but you probably read about the silver cord beforehand. I had read about the silver cord beforehand. And um, my friend Kevin said to me, have you got a silver cord? So it it was possibly um, just invented. On the other hand, um, uh, as you mentioned in the book, I go into auras. And I suspect that what's happening there is also some kind of effect of the body schema, that um, it doesn't quite fit the body. And it always, ghosts are always sort of um, kind of grayish, whitish, moving slightly moving stuff you know so are astral bodies which i think now are, are kind of disconnected body schemas i don't think it's so unreasonable to think that it might be quite reasonably natural if you're a bit scared of being not you know outside your body and there seems to be your body down here and seems to be me up here to invent in some kind of connection that would look just like a ghostly thing we really don't know not many people have uh, silver cords um, in surveys I did back in the 80s, it was something like 5% of uh, OBEers actually see a silver cord. It, you know, there are lots of little mysteries surrounding it like that. But as you were saying, the, the real key thing is this coming back to the connection with self. And I don't think it's a coincidence that now, as this interest is coming into science more, I think that goes along with another thing you mentioned earlier, which at last there are neuroscientists and psychologists who are also meditators, who are also deeply experienced with psychedelics and other things, and feel able to talk about that and actually use that as a contribution to their science. I'm, I'm very optimistic about, about where this, this might go. Yeah, I, I know. I think it's, it, it, it had to happen. And, and, and I think I was going to say is like, I, I, <laughs> From my perspective, I was like, if you guys, if you're not going to address this stuff, then I'm just not that interested. After a certain point, in what your story is about consciousness and its origins in the brain or whatever, because it's just so extraordinary and so clearly at the core of of consciousness, of building a world, of a sense of self and other, of memory, of imag what is imagination? I mean, all these things are you know they're, they're intensified by these extraordinary experiences. So uh, you know, I, I'm also uh, very excited and, 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 you know, that's part of why I've, I've been following your, your stuff for a long time. I have one, one question, um, that I know you address in the book, but uh, interests me is that, uh, cause I'm, I'm becoming more and more interested with the idea of, of different sort of personality types or types, or, you know, people have certain predispositions, you know, more pattern recognition, less pattern recognition. And there's lots of different ways to slice, uh, people typologically, but what is the sense that from your, your your research that there are certain if people have certain predilections that go, correspond uh, with the likelihood uh, or frequency of out of body experiences and other related kind of you know odd odd experiences are there certain types of people that we can kind of reliably predict are more likely to have these experiences. Not very reliably, but to some extent, yes. It's been known for a long time that OBEers tend to be high in psychological absorption, which means that they're easily absorbed in, you know, reading a book or watching a film or whatever, which is kind of odd to me because I'm the absolute opposite. I rarely watch films and I, you know, I kind of, I'm in the cinema and I find myself looking at the exit sign and kind of going off somewhere else. Um, and I'm very bad at reading fiction so i don't fit that that stereotype but that is a, a, a substantial finding um people who have other kinds of body distortions um people who uh experience sleep paralysis 
um, believe in the paranormal, which we don't know which way around that works. So there are a lot of findings that, of that kind. But more recently, which relates to what you were just saying, there's a the finding that you know may not stand up, but it interests me a lot, to do with pattern glare. Now, some people, when they look at stripy pictures or you know certain kinds of patterns, get very disturbed by them and kind of makes your, your brain go funny. And I, I'm very, very susceptible to pattern glare. And there's some recent studies that show that um, people who have OBEs are more susceptible to pattern glare and that um, this may be connected with, with the, the body schema stuff and so on. Um, to me, that's, you know, I'm not, that's, that's fun stuff, but it's, it's not at the core of what really interests me. You were, you were saying a minute ago about, about consciousness and how we need to connect it with the self, and that's much more what I'm really excited about, not to do with people's personalities, but to do with the fundamental questions about consciousness. And of course, the fundamental question is basically the mind-body problem. It just seems to most of us, most of the time, that I'm in here and that my desk and that screen and this light and that cup of tea are out there in a real physical world. And, you know, thousands of years have gone by of people arguing about that. And then you mentioned non-dual experiences. So you and I and many people we know have had experiences of non-duality in which that separation seems to disappear. And that was one aspect at the, in the last parts of my own original experience. And I've had non-dual experiences many times, both through psychedelics and through meditation. Now, but then you come back from those and you can't solve the problem intellectually. You know, the problem is still there in consciousness studies. This is, to me, the really exciting aspect of it. And if studying OBEs and studying how they're induced in the brain and studying how these relate to the default mode network, mind wandering, conditions under which self is more selfie and more grabby and so on, uh, if that can help us inch towards understanding um, how we can get out of the mind-body problem, that's what really that's what really intrigues me. Well, of course, when I when I hear this, uh, I'm also always thinking about your, you know, your Zen practice and, and the, the fact not just that Buddhism asserts that there's no, you know, substantial self in the way that we ordinary, ordinarily believe, but that the, the actual practice of it, at least in many ways, has to do with with looking at this problem, and you talked about how, for you, um, you, uh, you even wrote a book on this as a part of your practice. Has been involved with with uh, looking at kind of fundamental, sort of unanswerable questions and bringing them back into your practice, and with with the sort of central one, in some sense, being um, who am I? Uh, so when was it in your Zen practice that you started to really see that you were actually kind of interested in the same questions that you were following up in your uh, psychological studies of consciousness and the brain? Oh, that's a tricky one. Again, it's it's so hard to remember. I should say, by the way, I'm not a Buddhist. I, I couldn't be because I'm not going to take, you said Buddhism asserts something. Yeah, yeah, it does. But I'm not going to believe something because some ancient religion asserts it. I've been very lucky to be able to be in, in a group of people and other groups as well where they're quite happy for me to be trained in Zen without committing myself or making any vows and stuff like that. So to your question, quite late on, I would say, I mean, it, in the intellectual <clears throat> atmosphere there was back then most of my life, it would be quite weird to talk about meditation in the context of mm, academic work. 
I, but I did go to my first um, Tucson consciousness conference in 1996. This was, oh, it was not, anyway, the late, late 90s. And that was a real eye-opener to me that people were interested um, both in, in serious science and neuroscience and so on, and these deeper questions about consciousness. And I think from then on, gradually, I began to think, you know what, I, th this personal practice, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> this personal practice of um, delving into the mind is, a, is, a, is complementary to my intellectual work and my writing books and so on and so on. And you referred to my writing about Zen. I wrote a book which originally was called Ten Zen Questions. And then uh, they, when it became out in paperback, it, it, the publishers wanted it to be called Zen and the Art of Consciousness, which I, I much prefer that title in a way. But, the, but I hope it doesn't confuse people. But um, it was about questions that really bug me. And, I, and it's about my own explorations in meditation um, on solitary retreats or on group retreats, asking questions like, who am I? Or when is this or there is no time what is memory was one of the koans that i struggled with on a long retreat um and and those kind of questions which sometime before i would have thought were nothing at all to do with 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 the brain and 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 and, and the intellectual studies of consciousness but now I, it seems perfectly they fit together but I don't think I can tell you exactly when any more clearly than that. But it's just, yeah, just the fact that they were par parallel and increasingly uh, integrated is just a, is, is, is a wonderful thing. Um, one of the, I guess one of the questions I would come from uh, away from that is, is what is the, how, why is it useful or, or interesting or, or valuable to, introduce questions into meditation the way like when we think about the classic koan uh system and then you know the the which are often understood as paradoxes which i don't think is correct there's actually a lot of different ways to talk about koans at least historically in terms of the ones that are derived from classic zen uh texts um but you're talking about something that's a little bit more you know right there available uh boiled down if you will uh, little prompts or probes and there's something about that 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 really uh, really fascinates me, like because it's it's partly well, who's asking the question? It's partly that you know there's an aspect of meditation where you're kind of um, settling in to a to a, a sort of a state or openness or awareness, and it's kind of marked partly by the lack of discursive activity, the lack of of, of uh, linear sentences, and so the the turn to kind of reintroduce these questions, these little like little darts that to, 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 to stimulate something else happening. What, what's your experience of that, of that, of introducing those, of, of the ways you've learned to do it and, and what kinds of things have happened in, in relationship to these kind of probing questions that you stay with? Whoa, that's a very big and a very interesting question. Um, at its simplest, you asked what koans are about or what it's doing. Um, at, at its simplest, it's encouraging an open and in inquisitive mind, um, which takes you away from uh, I'm at, in here and this is out there. Um, so, so that's general to all of them. But if you take something, I think I have to be specific here. If you take something like 
the koan, when is this? I kind of made that up myself, that, that, that koan, but I worked with it for quite a long time. It's very, very weird. So you sit there, and in order to do koan practice, I mean, you have to have done a lot of meditation already. There's no point just sort of starting out at the beginning because you just get confused. But one thing that was really, really helpful for my, my Zen teacher, John Crook, um, said uh, when, when doing koan practice, he said, you will start intellectually. And um, that's fine. You know, you'll have a lot of Buddhists will say, oh, you mustn't think about it intellectually. He said, we're Westerners, for goodness sake. That's what we do. So I would sit there and go, you know, when is this? Well, what does it mean by this? And what's this? And what does when mean? And, you know, blah, 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 blah. And as he said, that wears itself out. And I think he's absolutely right. It's absolutely fine to start that way. It'll wear itself out after a few days. You know, you just it just can't keep going on that. So then you're left with calm calm mind, stuff coming and going maybe, and when any thoughts come along, not just letting them be and letting them go, but drop the question, when is this? And this can be whatever's happening. And when, when you have in your mind, and it becomes wordless after a while when you've been practicing with a koan, you don't really need the words. They have a sort of feeling that, oh, oh remember the question, and you get this sort of feeling of when is this? And, and when starts to be so peculiar, and when when becomes peculiar, that can lead to dropping into timelessness and the states we were talking about earlier on, where things are happening and changes are happening, but they're not happening in some sort of order or any framework and it, they fall away. But of course, always, as you implied, it throws back on the nature of self. These kind of questions, I think probably all the koans I've, I've worked with, kind of come back to the relationship between self and experience and they many of them lead in their roundabout and peculiar ways to that distinction disappearing um i think i've sort of lost track of what your question was i'm just no, rambling no, no. here about koans <laughs> no not at all i i was actually interested in a in a in a ramble uh based on on your your, your own experiences i mean one thing that's interesting about your the the fact of your of your committed uh, meditation practice alongside your your intellectual work is is this question about explanation like what 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 how how much power does an explanation have you know so one one way of, of looking at it is you you have these extraordinary experience the extraordinary experience is, is it happened it's real as an experience and then we have a variety of explanations and we can war endlessly about explanations and there are better and worse ways of of uh, 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 of, of um, establishing explanations, what's a good explanation, what's wrong with that explanation. Um, and, you know, even though I'm making a very complicated uh, debate, very simple is one way of talking about the so-called hard problem of consciousness is that pe people even, you know, very uh, smart thinking, uh, science informed, uh, cognitive philosophers and, and whatever, um, have weight explanations somewhat differently in terms of is it sufficient to have an explanation as a way of describing the totality of what consciousness is? Uh, is there something missing always in in a, in a mere explanation, something about the the the, the thusness or the quiddity or the uh, uh, the qualia or whatever you know, and I don't want to get into all that that debate so much as to ask you, how you how you think about explanation vis-a-vis -vis the fact that you are also very committed to a practice 
that in a way explanations, at least on the pillow, eh, you know, that's that's like you say, you get that stuff out of the way to get to the, the you know, the the openings, the transformations, the shifts into timelessness, the shifts into a uh, non-dual experience. Is it like you have a pack with yourself like, on the pillow? No explanations. As soon as they get off, then I can like. You know, let them go. Let them try to, to try to work at it. Or in, in a way, how do you navigate just in your own integrated spiritual and intellectual life of this sort of balance between when explanations are really what we're talking about and when something else is allowed to happen, if you will, uh, that doesn't take that form? That is really interesting question. Well, it's not exactly a question, is it? It's a whole, <laughs> you're kind of laying out there a whole whole um, relationship between explanation and what we might call direct experience, although that's a, tricky to know what exactly we mean by that. It is. But that makes me um, think about the koans again. So in practicing some koan, um, like who am I, or I don't know, it wouldn't matter which one, um, explanations fall away and what happens is a different relationship to experience and a different a different kind of consciousness you know it's tricky if you say an altered state of consciousness because i'm not sure that's at least it's very different from what we mean by altered state of consciousness when you talk about taking a particular drug or hypnosis or something i don't know um but explanations definitely are not what's important about going deeply into a question or going deeply into any meditation practice that leads to deep changes in the relationship between between self and and what's happening but that doesn't mean that the two are completely separate so we're coming back to the question in my lifetime that you asked earlier um, about you know the coming together of my meditation practice with my science and what you've what you've um, put into that question fits very well with why I wrote the book um, Ten Zen Questions or Zen and the Art of Consciousness. Because what I do in that book is I start out in a, in a little introduction saying, these are kind of some of the things that people in consciousness studies today seem to assume. So they seem to assume that some uh, things we do, we do consciously and some we don't do consciously. Some brain processes are conscious and some aren't conscious. Um, the, the self is a kind of observer observing a stream of consciousness. And there is a stream of consciousness which consists of all the things that are we I am experiencing as they go along. They talk about the contents of consciousness as though consciousness were a container that has some things in it and other things aren't, and so on. So I lay out, well, I don't know, about 10 or so of these things that seem to me taken for granted in most of consciousness studies. So then I do the whole, you know, 10 chapters on these questions, which are not about that. They're about the falling away of, of, of things, about the effects of asking difficult questions. Um, and at the end, I come back to those 10 assumptions and go, you know what? If you do this and you look into these difficult questions, um, then you find that you don't any, any longer. You can't believe in those things. For example, um, when I used to teach consciousness studies, and this is all to do with my big textbook on consciousness, um, I got the students every week to ask a question as many times as they could. And some of them did really well with it. So the first question was, am I conscious now? And this is an absolutely fascinating question. Because for most people, if you, and, and probably you now, are you conscious now, Eric? Uh, now? <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> okay. 
I would say, even for me, um, I would say whenever I ask myself the question, am I conscious now, the answer is yes. So we falsely jump to the conclusion that it's always like that. Now, how do you find this out? Well, you find this out by asking the question again and again and again. And a lot of my students would come back to me on the next lecture and say, yeah, but I got this funny sense that when I asked the question, it was kind of a bit like waking up or sort of coming to or becoming more conscious or what's going on there. And I'd say, okay, the next question is, what was I conscious of a moment ago? Now, that is a really interesting question because you're asking about before you, as it were, switched the light on or became aware. You're asking about the moment before. And this is one of the questions in my book. And my own answer to that is when in meditation with a calm mind, I look and other times as well. But it's easier to do when you when you have a calm mind. Look back to a moment ago. What I find is all sorts of things were going on. Oh, yeah, there's a kind of thread of me that seems to be remembering what it felt like to be sitting on this chair. And there's another thread that of me that seemed to be sort of aware of that slight humming noise in the in the computer. And there's another bit that was aware of some vague thought I had about is the cat all right over there on the cushion. And, you know, all of these things were going on. And then I asked, well, which one was I conscious of? And you know what? There isn't an answer. Now, this leads to a real overthrowing of what is assumed by nearly everybody in consciousness studies, that there are things that are in consciousness and things that aren't, and that at any time in my waking life, there must be an answer to the question, what was I conscious of at that moment? And I say there isn't an answer. Now, that's a pretty profound discovery. I mean, you might say it's a little rubbish and, you know, okay, fine, it might be. But if so, that really overthrows a lot of what what people assume so back to your question about the relationship between explanation and experience i am there saying just one small thing about that which is that by delving deeply into certain kinds of experiences you can throw out some explanations i haven't got wonderful things to replace it with but i'm doing a lot of throwing out which given the state of consciousness studies now actually might be quite useful um and at least that's what i'm pursuing so why is that? So given the state we're, we're in right now, we have you know just a few minutes left here, but given the state of, of consciousness studies, why is that kind of throwing out appropriate? Are we, are we at a point where we're getting down to some of the, the axioms that people have been working with and recognizing that they may not be appropriate and that what we, we got to clear stuff out of the way without knowing necessarily what to put there or what, what's going view. on? Yeah. yeah. And that's, that, of course, that fits with everything we talked about at the beginning, about having an open mind that because of certain experiences, if you clamp down your mind on the first explanation you come to, like I did to begin with, oh, that's astral projection, end of story, I'm not interested in anything else. You don't get anywhere. So it encourages kind of open mind. But I would say one of the most popular, if not the most popular approach in consciousness studies has been, still is, the search for the neural correlates of consciousness. So people are looking for which brain processes correlate with being conscious of those, whatever those processes are doing, and which ones are unconscious. Well, if I'm right, that that's a doomed and pointless exercise. We're never going to find that. And given that we're bogged down in the mind-body problem, the hard problem of consciousness, how can you know the firing of neurons be this experience of being in this room? We're, we're so bogged down that in that state of a science, I think it is useful to throw out some of, of those basics. Hey, I don't know, but this is what I'm doing and it's fun and interesting and I'm going to keep doing it. And, you know, I can be proved wrong easily. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. 
Well, it's but it's not even just like wrong. Wrong implies that you're putting forward a particular, you know, proposition. You're also modeling a process of inquiry. And that's the part to me where science, philosophy, self-exploration, psychedelics, meditation, what whatever, they're all, they're, there's a way in which they can all be facets of this kind of process of, of, of inquiry that has its own character, that has its own sort of dynamic, that doesn't look exactly the same as just asking complicated problems about mind-brain relationship and coming up with good answers about it. There's some, there's like an additional sort of existential or phenomenological side of it that is part of the process. Um, and, you, and you know what? The process of personal inquiry has weakened my sense of it's important whether I'm right or wrong. It's important that this is my idea and, and so on. It, it, it's still there, but, you know, it's it kind of weakened it. And and that is part of, of I think, what, what we need to do in, in this exploration. I said I could be shown wrong. I'll be shown wrong if they discover the neural correlates of consciousness and it all works out in that direction. Okay, they will. But to me, this, this is all about bringing together the personal practice and the intellectual inquiry. Um, the... The uh, the process of meditation itself helps the intellectual inquiry to be more open ended, more fluid, more alert to evidence, more exploratory. And that's why I think I still go on all these decades later, you know, not getting bored of it and wanting to carry on asking these questions. Well, very good. I think uh, I think we'll end it there. I one one final thing. The last time I talked to you, you said that it was uh, seeing myself is coming out in the states. It's just in the UK now. We do we know anything yet? No, we don't know. Um, it's really really frustrating. Um, and the publishers in Britain have uh, hold of the rights, and they can't find a publisher in the states that they are willing to sell the rights to. And I do not know whether it's a money thing or whether I do not know. Um, I am in, in contact with my favorite skeptical publisher, and I hope that they may be interested. If anyone out there wants the book to be published in, in the States, please write to me or write, go on my Facebook page and put a thing there to say you'd like to be able to get the book, because at the moment, I'm afraid you can't. It's very frustrating. And yeah. of course, it doesn't sell like all those heavenly tourism books at all. You know, skeptical books don't. But, uh, well, I hope some people will enjoy it anyway. Yes, I, they will, because it's not. I don't think of you as just a skeptic. That's the thing. No, <laughs> it's like, no, you know, no. and that and that's a difference that makes a big difference, at least in my book, and for the kinds of listeners to uh, to the show. And you can, of course, always buy. You can buy books on from Amazon UK. Uh, but let's try to get this book out here. It deserves to be here. But uh, Susan, thanks so much for joining us on Expanding Mind. Oh, it's been great to talk to you, Eric. Thank you very much indeed. And I hope right. I'll see you in the flesh again soon. Exactly. Okay. See you soon, and uh, good luck. All right, uh, till next week, folks. Keep your minds open. Mm -hmm.